Hello, and welcome to the Rennick Centre podcast. Continuing with our telepractice series, we chat to specialist teacher of students who are blind or low vision, Trisha Dapachi, to share ideas and solutions for supporting this population over telepractice. We hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Rennick Centre podcast. My name's Trudy Smith, and I'm the manager of continuing professional education at the RIDBC Rennick Centre. We are continuing with telepractice. This is the world that we are in at the moment. And we're really conscious that we've been focusing a lot on deaf and hard of hearing clients. And so we are in luck today. We've got Trisha Dapachi, who is going to talk to us about supporting students who are blind or vision impaired. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please, Trisha? Thanks, Trudy. Yes, um, I've been at RIDBC for over 10 years and um, I'm a teacher of the vision impaired as well as a qualified orientation and mobility instructor. So I've been doing telepractice for about 13 years now at what used to be called teleschool. We now refer to it as remote services. Thank you, Adam. I'm going to ask the question that everyone is actually thinking right now and is too scared to ask. Trisha, the kids can't see you. So how does that work with telepractice? Right, they don't see us on the screen, that's right. But they can't see us anyway. Even if we're right there next to them, they're severely vision impaired and or blind and can't see you whether you're in a classroom or on the screen. And what tends to happen in um, remote services is that the students become good listeners and the parents become good coaches. They get empowered by the instruction and then um, get their own children to carry it out. Sure. I just thought I would open with the elephant in the room with that. So thank you for that as well. And I know that one of the things that's really important for clients who are blind or visually impaired is that finger and tactile exploration. So what are some ways that you encourage that in remote services? We encourage finger movement from day one. We like the children to explore different textures, textures, different toys, different finger isolation activities, um, finger play, musical instruments, etc. Their fingers are very important to them, especially if they're going to be braille readers. Um, and the biggest form of development that we encourage is gross motor development. Do they crawl? Quite often they won't, because if you start crawling, your head is usually first. Yep. And um, you don't want your head banging into things. Yep, makes sense. But even if you go back to day one, a little baby with sight is moving from very early stages. They're looking at their hands and they're finding mum and their muscles are developing. That's not the same as a child that does not have sight. Um, so if you um, are not active enough to bear weight on your hands, that makes it a lot more difficult for braille reading and getting information from a cane. You need that proprioceptive development from gross motor movement. So you're setting up with your activities with parents with particularly young children and giving them ideas for how to promote that? Yes, I mean, they don't find their hands. They, they might not find their feet. They've got no reason to roll over because they can't see anything to roll over for. They have got no reason to bear weight because they don't need to push themselves up to see an object that's further away. And when they finally do stand up, quite often they will cruise on the furniture for a long, long time, much, much longer than a sighted person. So if there is no intervention, 
their footprints actually develop differently than if they were sighted. So we've got to make sure that motor development is as close to as normal as possible by providing intervention. And you, you mentioned Braille and the importance of having all of that early development before you start with Braille. So when do you start? At what age would you start with Braille? People used to say kindergarten or think kindergarten. No, you start with Braille the same time you start with a sighted child. Now you usually start reading to a sighted child by about the age of three months. That's when you're ready, that's when they're ready and you have lovely story time. Now, if your child doesn't see at all, there's a good chance that it's going to take you a little bit longer to adjust to that. And it's a good chance that you um, might have a few problems resourcing books that are tactile or have braille on them. So you would imagine at around six months of age, you might settle into that book time routine with bumpy writing with the little one and enjoy stories and a love of literature. Sure. I imagine that those books can't just be bought at a regular bookshops either or borrowed from a library. So how do you access those books? Right, there are some books you can get um, commercially available, such as um, texture books, you know, with fur, cat's fur, etc. Um, there are a limited number of books with Braille on them. Um, but quite often you've got to source your books from an agency, such as um, RIDBC or uh, Vision Australia, etc., or find someone who can make those books. Um, the commercial books can be Braille with a sticky Braille label, which means the parents can read to both or all of their children at the same time. So it's exciting for the sighted children and there's bumpy writing and texture for the vision impaired child. One of the, the messages that's been coming through this telepractice series that we've been doing is time and the importance of slowing down, some of these activities that you've got planned will take longer simply because of the transmission you're working with families and then with the child and taking that pressure off you. Is it the same with, with clients who are blind or vision impaired, that need for time? The best gift you could ever give your vision impaired child is time. Time to do their daily routines because quite often you base your literature on things like daily routines. Yeah. Uh, let them, give them time to do it themselves. They don't need to do it quickly, but they do need to learn to do it. Yeah. Uh, they need time with people like pets, or well, not people, animals like pets, <laughs> <laughs> uh, family members, etc. so that when their literature is developed for them, it's about things they know. So when you're looking for materials for the child or making them yourselves, you'd like to be about things they know and avoid literature that is um, fictitious like fairies and spacemen, cowboys, sometimes even superheroes aren't appropriate when they're very, very little. So give them time to discover these books, um, give them time to do activities and um, just watch as they start to develop independence. So a big part of your role, I guess, as a telepractitioner is setting up the activity and then just observing what's going on and then coaching the family from there. Absolutely. Sure. What, what's, for someone who's never done telepractice before with a client who's blind or vision impaired, what are the important um, things that people should consider? Um, the most important thing really is being prepared. What you need to do is have your goals uh, established, how you're going to achieve those goals, and the resources you need 
to be able to achieve those goals. We tend to send out an educational package to the family so that what they have got at home is what we have got um, at the other side of the telepractice. It's very easy to wing things when you're working with the child on the floor. You can just grab something close by and wing it. But that doesn't work as well with telepractice. You don't know what is in their room. Um, so be prepared, know your goals and send out appropriate materials that are actually of interest to the child and the family culture. And I guess finally, um, we, we've talk, dealt with this in one of our, our podcasts around behaviour, but is there any considerations for clients who are blind or vision impaired in terms of behaviour in telepractice? Absolutely, yes. Um, the first thing we've got to do is to go slow. When you're in a face-to-face -face situation, you tend to be able to rush. The audio is a lot better and you can work at a different pace. So you've got to be quite measured, quite measured in your language. So can you find the top of the page? And you give them time to find the top of the page. Now, just next to it, you will find so-and-so. Sure. So going slow and being measured is very important. As in face-to-face -face situations, in telepractice, there are times where a behavior hinders learning or is socially unacceptable. Now, if you've got a child who is engaging in stereotypic behaviors, commonly known as stimming, mm -hmm. or on the other hand, a child who is going blind and prefers to try and look at the dots instead of feeling them, is an issue that hinders their learning. You want them to use a different part of their brain, different neurological process than seeing the braille. So it's not dangerous behavior, but just hinders learning. So um, with the behavior management approach, what you try and do is catch them being good. Sure. Um, and you've got to define what good is. It's not defining what bad is, it's defining what good is. So for the, um, the stimming situation with the child who's stimming their hands backwards and forwards and rocking, um, you define the behaviour as sitting still and having still hands. Right. For the child who is tempted to look at the braille because they can still see it, um, good behaviour is having your head up and uh, looking at a spot on the wall or somewhere. So it's much more of a positive reinforcement model rather than focusing on rewarding the good rather than reinforcing the bad. Yes, it's actually referred to as differential reinforcement of incompatible behaviour. So the DRI is um, the way we would approach it. And once they know what the behaviour is, we establish a verbal contract with them. I want you to have good hands for so-and-so, or I want you to have your head up for so-and-so. And the rewards that I tend to use over telepractice are ringtones. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so a, sound, a sound reward. Yeah. So if I find that they've got still hands and we would have this in the, um, the verbal contract, I would give them a ding, a ringtone of their choice, and all of a sudden, one, they've been rewarded, but it's also a prompt too, and it's not a negative prompt. Yeah. Um, and you might start with a very short period of still hands or um, looking up and not looking at the braille, and you increase that time um, at, at, 
introduce the more appropriate behaviour, so it overtakes the inappropriate behaviour. But ringtones are fabulous. That really reinforces the importance of slowing down and, and you as the, as the teacher being the observer rather than the person running the sessions because you can't maintain attention on all of those things as well as teach, I imagine. That's right. Um, so what we rely very he heavily on the we rely very heavily on the parent or the adult that's with them, and we work towards self monitoring. Yeah. So those uh, ringtones or beeps can be part of their own self monitoring over time. Right. Yeah. And, and again, as you say, it leads to independence, doesn't it? Which is yes. so important for these mm. clients. Mm. Behaviour management can be difficult over video conference. You're relying on another person, another adult to, um, in, it, you are relying on another adult to ensure that the child remains engaged. Um, the typical token economy can be used, especially when the parents are giving the rewards. It could be stickers, it could be the sounds of beads going on a rack, it could be anything that um, requires building up a number of rewards and then trading them for something. Um, a very effective reward I find is money. It doesn't mean that you give them money and they get to keep it. If you create a, a template that allows money to be stored um, in a little cavity, such as thermoforming um, coins, you can have five ten cent coins and so it adds up to a dollar. You can have $5 coins, etc. And each time the, the student deserves a coin, the parent could either make that decision themselves. Yep. You could uh, remind them that they put that coin in. So the student will hear the coin going in to the tray. And when they have earned a certain amount of money, such as a dollar or $5, etc., then they can trade that money for an activity. Something like 10 minutes on a keyboard or, um, you know, an extra marshmallow when you have morning tea that morning. <laughs> there, it's, it's called a token economy. It's a form of bribery, but these kids do need motivation. It's not always easy for them. Don't think of it as bribery. It is a legitimate reward and it's not money that they take home with them. It's something that they can trade for an activity that is highly motivating. Token economy works especially well for those students who are older. Sure. And I guess that's where the negotiation comes in, doesn't it? That parents knowing what already is intrinsically motivating to the child and, and making the choice from there, what they can provide as well. Absolutely. And it makes it a three-way activity, not just a two-way activity. The parent is involved with the uh, reward process being part of the uh, very important part of the session. Trisha, this has been such a really interesting insight into supporting um, clients who are blind and vision impaired. They're a small population, but they're important. So thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. A big thank you to Trisha for speaking with us today. If you have any questions regarding topics raised in this podcast, be sure to reach out via our Facebook page.